Hello, and welcome to a new season of Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we have with us Professor Charles Ogletree, director of the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School. Professor Ogletree, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So it's now 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It seems fitting that a black president should be the one to take to those steps 50 years later and do honor by uh, King's legacy. Um, Yet between the Supreme Court ruling on the Voting Rights Act, uh, the recent uh, uh, Trayvon Martin case, and now a ruling on the constitutionality of the stop and frisk law in New York City, there's a little bit of um, a question over whether race relations in the United States right now are making progress or perhaps slipping back. What's your sense of it? Well, my sense is that it's deja vu all over again. Uh, as much as uh, Dr. King's uh, address in 1963 was a lightning rod for equality and justice and freedom and fairness, uh, we see some of the same problems happening in the 21st century. Uh, and even though we're better Uh, There's an African-American president elected twice. There's an African-American governor here in Massachusetts elected twice. Uh, We see uh, folks uh, who are CEOs of companies like uh, Ken Chenault of American Express and other important companies. African-Americans have made a lot of progress in 50 years. But uh, as you you look at the criminal justice system, uh, there are more than a million African-Americans in jail now. Uh, That didn't happen uh, last century. Uh, if you look at the joblessness, we're right back where we were with people, African Americans, looking for jobs and the unemployment uh, in the double figures, uh, in the, the, the low uh, teens, 12, 13 percent African Americans uh, have uh, uh, no jobs at all. Uh, we, and we look at uh, education that's failing uh, in many places, uh, the African American public school system. Uh, we fought to, to integrate the system uh, back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and we see now uh, that uh, little progress is being made because African Americans are falling back in education. If you're not getting uh, an get education, you can't get a job, you can't take care of your family. So uh, these are, in some sense, uh, the worst of times, uh, even though, in other senses, it's the best of times with African American progress and failures in the 21st century. Now, the march that's taken place um, in honor of the 50th anniversary, uh, it's not exactly focused on racial relations. It's focused on jobs, isn't it? Jobs, uh, but it's also going to talk a little bit about, uh, I'm going to be speaking, it'll be uh, uh, discussing uh, Trayvon Martin, what it means about racial profiling. That's real. Uh, and it's uh, going to be talking about you know where we are 50 years from the time that uh, Dr. King made his address. It's different. Uh, both uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and Reverend Jesse Jackson have been part of the committee to put this march together. And people are coming from all over, not just the country, but around the world. I've been to uh, the Virgin Islands. I've been to Jamaica. Uh, and people are talking about bringing delegations uh, to be a part of it. And I expect a couple hundred thousand people in Washington uh, for the workshops that will start uh, uh, this week, the week of uh, August uh, 19th, uh, and uh, go all the way up until the march on the 24th. And then the president is speaking on the actual anniversary date, August 28th. And I think uh, since he was so open about Trayvon Martin and about race relations uh, when he uh, gave an impromptu press conference uh, several weeks ago, 
I suspect he'll be very candid when he has to say about where we are. He wouldn't be elected. It wouldn't be president if it had not been for African-Americans who came out in unprecedented numbers and women who came out in unprecedented numbers. Uh, and I think he's very grateful for that. I think he'll say that and we'll hear that uh, when he talks about being the first African-American president elected uh, to the United States presidency and what it means for opening doors for women uh, and people of color uh, and others uh, in the 21st century. Now, after the George Zimmerman verdict came in, um, the president made uh, some unanticipated remarks um, that were fairly powerful. Did you speak with him at, at the time that was happening? And did you get a sense that he just felt a very strong desire to get out in front on this issue? Did he feel like he had to? I, I spoke to him after he gave the remarks, and I thought it, they were very much right on time, uh, make it made a big difference. Uh, and I thought it uh, was uh, a personal uh, point of view. He was saying Trayvon Martin, uh, would, uh, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. He said that in 2012. Uh, but this year, he said uh, Trayvon Martin was like me 35 years ago because he was a 17-year-old kid in Chicago trying to decide what to do in Chicago uh, and in uh, uh, Hawaii uh, growing up. Uh, and he had the same kind of problems that people were following uh, him. People were, were women were clutching their purses thinking that he was going to rob them. He didn't. Uh, and he was, in a sense, uh, humanizing himself, uh, not just a father, but uh, someone who grown up in the same uh, atmosphere. And re remember, uh, Barack Obama was born in 1961, so he was a, a, a young toddler uh, when Dr. King gave his speech in 1963. Uh, but it meant a lot to him, and his mother taught, taught, taught him a lot about race relations in the United States. And he has embraced that. Uh, he appointed the first African-American attorney general, Eric Holder, uh, to uh, his position. He appointed the first woman ever to the uh, very powerful position of solicitor general, and that was Lena Kagan. He appointed two women to the Supreme Court and with his two vacancies, uh, uh, one of color, that's uh, Sonia Sotomayor and uh, Elena Kagan. Uh, so he's been doing things uh, uh, to let people know that he takes serious his role as president of the United States and also that he is now embracing and asking all of us to have this conversation on racial profiling. And I think that's a very important thing. So the Trayvon Martin case in particular uh, brought together uh, folks interested in civil rights, but also folks interested in gun control, which is you know a hot issue these days. Um, the stand your ground rule uh, policy or law uh, in particular has been fingered as a reason, one of the reasons that uh, it happened. Is there a racial component specific to Stand Your Ground, or is it just that they happen to come together in this? I, I think case? there's not a real racial component. Some people think that it is because it was uh, originally designed by folks saying uh, we have to stop all this violence in our community so everyone should be armed. But in fact, uh, the Stand Your Ground has been used more often by African Americans who have found themselves being victims of uh, uh, assaults or, or efforts to challenge them, and, and they've used Stand Your Ground. The, it was not used uh, by George Zimmerman. He used self-defense, uh, and he used it very effectively because Trayvon Martin was dead uh, and couldn't speak for himself. Uh, and I have to say, uh, my career has been as a defense lawyer, as a public defender in Washington, D.C., but having watched every day of the Trayvon Martin trial with George Zimmerman, I was not at all surprised uh, that he was acquitted because I thought the prosecution did a, a 
poor job uh, in trying to present a case uh, on behalf of Trayvon Martin. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, the defense did an excellent job uh, in putting, uh, in a sense, Trayvon Martin on trial and brought out all of the negative things about his background, which I thought w- w- was beyond the pale. Uh, and so the verdict was not a surprise to me as someone who's experiencing in these complicated criminal cases. It was, um, I think, what was going to happen. And now the real the reality is that what's going to happen as a result of that, President Obama's uh, reference to Trayvon Martin makes him uh, an image for all of us in eternity. And I think about uh, uh, the uh, tragic death uh, in the 50s uh, of Emmett Till, uh, a young teenager who's only 14 years old, went down from Chicago to Mississippi, uh, found himself uh, a victim of a brutal beating in, in his death. Uh, and uh, Trayvon Martin was shot and killed, but he, in a sense, will be with us in eternity. We'll always remember Trayvon Martin's death uh, in February of last year. And we will remember him at the March on Washington uh, 50 years later. And he'll still be remembered uh, 50 years from now in 2063 because of uh, the impact as a young black man who did not die because of uh, uh, a disease or some illness, but died like most men his age of African descent, uh, teenagers, uh, of homicide. That is the number one cause of death of people his age, 17 years old. So. I suspect we'll see some changes. Uh, the president also talked about gun control uh, in the State of the Union address, and he he talked about uh, Gaffney Giffords, uh, the woman from uh, uh, Arizona who was shot and seriously injured, uh, and is still in the recovery process. He, he talked about the young woman, African American woman, uh, Miss Pendleton, who uh, was at his uh, reinauguration and then was shot and killed by gun violence. She wasn't involved in gangs, but she was shot and killed. Uh, this past uh, January in Chicago. Uh, in Chicago. And I think that just reminds us that uh, anybody can be a victim of any time uh, of the census violence. And his call for gun control was against the uh, Democratic and Republican black and white views about guns. Everybody believes that they have a right to bear arms, and they do uh, in most states in the United States. And even though there's a, a few... Uh, pieces of legislation to to have gun control, how many bullets you can own and how, what kind of weapon you can purchase. The reality is that uh, it's too late to rethink the Second Amendment, and I'm not one advocating for the repeal of the Second Amendment. It's a very important amendment, and it helped people fight against uh, the the uh, Europe the British uh, who uh, occupied uh, America uh, many centuries ago. Uh, and people believe in it very firmly. So I think that we're going to make some progress, but we have to take one step at a time and, and talking about gun control and talking about sensible limits. So uh, one of the biggest proponents of gun control who kind of straddles the line of left and right is uh, Mayor Bloomberg. One of his approaches to uh, gun violence is this stop and frisk policy. Right. Um, now, this has now been ruled unconstitutional by one appellate court. Right. Um, What's the, I guess, the, the, the problem with it, and what's the solution? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think it's incredibly problematic. It's another form of racial profiling. The stop and frisk is stopping black and brown men uh, and thousands who have never committed a crime, who don't have a weapon. And uh, Mayor Bloomberg.
Berg and uh, Police Chief uh, Kelly are both wrong in advocating for uh, tougher laws in that sense. What they need to do is have smarter laws uh, that uh, will protect everybody. And, and they, in a sense, were profiling black men and, and uh, brown men as if they're the only people who commit crimes, only people who would have drugs, the only people who should be in our system. And that's just falsely wrong. The data proves it's wrong. So I, I think that uh, Judge uh, Chunlin was right in saying that the stop and frisk law in New York uh, is wrong. Uh, and I think the Second Circuit uh, Court of Appeals will uphold her ruling. And I hope that that will uh, alert other judges to stop the, this uh, pattern of racial profiling that has happened around our country. And I think that uh, this is the first step and a long step of uh, getting our country back to protecting all of its citizens, not those who are black and brown who are always the <clears throat> accused of crime, but everyone should be treated equally and fairly under the law. Another issue that's come up recently that I mentioned before was the Voting Rights Act and it's being, at least one section of it being struck down by the Supreme Court. Is there any chance, do you think, that the that Congress could actually bring together the votes to pass an updated version of that section? I, I think so. There, there are many sections to the Voting Rights Act, uh, and uh, you're referencing both Section 5 and Section 4 are both, uh, in a sense, uh, being challenged uh, uh, and uh, determined to be unconstitutional. But Sections 2 and Section 3... Uh, have already been referred to by Attorney General Eric Holder trying to figure out how to make sure this happens. And the reality is that when uh, Chief Justice Roberts says there was no problem, there were a legion of problems in the 2012 elections. And in fact, people were uh, engaging in voter suppression north, south, east, and west. Uh, every uh, we, we were looking at states around the country that were changing these new laws, saying you had to have an identification to vote. That's never happened before to any American. And the voting rights is not just for African-Americans. They're for uh, military individuals. They're for women. Uh, <clears throat> they're for Native Americans, Asian-Americans, Latinos, Latinas. And so it's not a black-white issue. It's a broader issue than that. It affects all citizens. And you expect to have the right to vote, like you should have the right to serve on a jury, cer certain basic fundamental rights to every person who's a citizen of the United States. Uh, and so uh, we're uh, still challenging uh, what uh, has been done, but I'm very impressed that uh, the legislature is already looking at it. Uh, Eric Holder is already talking about it. The president is sending them a bill to make sure they, they will do some things. And I expect that we will have a new voting rights law, a uh, new voting rights act uh, uh, passed by a bipartisan Congress in so the year 2013. You're not afraid of it being stuck in the same kind of partisan battles that we've seen in the past few years? Not at all, because uh, folks vote, and uh, black folks vote uh, overwhelmingly, uh, and women vote overwhelmingly. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you're going to need black votes, you're going to need women's votes, you're going to need this bipartisan effort. So I suspect that Congress will say, we're going to make sure they're voting rights so that everybody's vote. You, you can't find a southern state where you can say, well, we don't need these votes. You need them in South Carolina. You need them. Uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, you need them in Alabama. Uh, you need them in Mississippi. Uh, and you need them in Ohio. Uh, and you need them in New, uh, New Hampshire. And there are a lot of places around the country where voting matters. And I think that if people are going to run for office, run for national office, they're going to need to make sure that they uh, embrace all people, not just certain people, to make sure that that happens. Well, Professor Ogletree, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 
You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Thank you.